While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. about robots what do i think about robots yeah like how do you feel about you're a tech guy you're into the tech and the watches uh how do you feel about robots as long as we are in control of them i feel fine about them i know you'd get freaked out about robots killing everybody (sighs) i don't get freaked out. i kind of get morbidly fascinated by it like i don't know okay like okay those weird Google military dog robots that you kick and they won't fall down, don't like them. Oh, it's those ones the uncanny, that look... The wait. Uncanny Valley thing is too much. Are they dogs or have you seen the one that's like the size of a horse that can like roll down a hill and like right itself? I don't like that either. That's, I don't like... Uh, that's the line. I guess that's the line for me and robots is I need to be <laughs> able to kick them over <laughs> to feel comfortable with them. Yeah, it can know anything it wants about me. It can sound like a human. It can act like a human. But if I can't knock it down, if it's a weeble, if it's a weeble bot, C three PO is as complicated as I want a robot to get. Because if you push that guy, he's never getting up. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like I think about bend enough to get up from that. I think about ten jokes were were written into the various Star Wars movies about knocking him over. So yeah, I think yes. All right, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And each week we talk about a book that we have read or a robot that we've kicked over, and we tell the other person about it. Uh, Andrew, we'll get to your book in a second, which was? Um, It was Foundation by Isaac Asimov, which was recommended by Ryan, one one of our listeners and also one of our Patreon donors great we'll get to that in a second because uh, some of our other listeners have wrote in some emails which they can do at overduepod at gmail.com we love getting emails from everyone and first this is going back a ways andrew elizabeth h wrote in um saying that she recently found us and had listened to our king lear podcast uh that she said nearly killed her from laughing which I think seems oddly relevant to King Lear. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure. I hope that we didn't actually harm her. Um, and she hopes that it continues into the future and would love if it could be twice a week. I don't I don't know if we could read that many books, Andrew. I think we'd start turning I, out could... way more choose-your-own-adventures than we'd like. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think anybody wants that. I think I ran out of voices the last time, so... Oh, yeah. We're going to have to go do research to, like, find more voices. We need to work on some more, yeah. <laughs> go. We each have to go on our own stand-up tours to, like, try out characters. Just, yeah, I could do, like, this Dick Van Dyke lock. Hello, governor. <laughs> I found this ninja sword. <laughs> nope. I lost it. All right, go on with your stuff. Uh, she also recommended a couple of books, um, specifically Margaret Atwood, uh, which we've gotten a couple of times, so we should definitely circle mm-hmm. back. Uh, Atwood came up a lot when we were talking about uh, Canadian authors 
I, if I, and also when we read um, Handmaid's Tale by well, Margaret Atwood, stop. we talked about her a little bit in that one. Too. Stop it! I I was thinking that we'd read her stuff, and I couldn't remember which one. We just, <laughs> okay. Uh, and then Colleen wrote in in response to last week's episode on their eyes were watching God. Uh, we got a lot of great feedback on that one, so thank you very much, everyone who listened. Uh, she said she loves the show and listens to it all the time. And that she's a library sciences student, so it's one of her favorites. And I, I'm glad that we are speaking to a particular demographic of students. Yeah. <laughs> um, her her email was about reading the book in high school, and for some reason she hated the book, but listening to what we read on the show and the description of it made her want to go back and kind of baffled her as to why she could have hated it in the first place. And I think that's that's kind of a running theme of this show is either specifically with me reading books that I didn't make time to read when they were assigned to that me. That you were supposed to read, but you didn't. And and kind of thus, you know, working on the working assumption that they were bad or not worth my time. Um, and then coming yeah, back. Yeah, like, I remember feeling that way about, like, Lord of the Flies and Great Gatsby. Because mm. I read those, like, sophomore year of high school. And mm. I just was not in a place to appreciate them. So I think if I went back, I'd probably like them a lot more. Yeah, and some of those books are... You know, they're simpler or at least smaller than, like, the Titanic, like, capital L literary books that come out now. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's much more likely for, like, a a book that's going to become a sensation now to be, like, big and chunky and, like, quote-unquote worth your time. Like everybody just says they've read it, but they haven't actually finished. Yeah, well, and it's it's like a doorstop. Like, you have to, like, invest... Like all the Game of Thrones books, like they become an investment and thus are a statement in themselves. But mm-hmm. like, the Gatsby's not a long book. Lord of the Flies isn't a big book. I no, can shove that in books. my pocket. You we know? read a bunch of stuff that year in high school. Like we read Fahrenheit 451 that year. Mm. Um, I think that's the first year I read Most Dangerous Game. Which, if you haven't, spoiler alert: it's Man. The Most Dangerous <laughs> Game is Man. <laughs> Do we have any other emails? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have one more from Kelsey, uh, who is writing writing in to ask about uh, why we don't just go to the library uh, or use library e-book, e-books to read instead of buying the books. Andrew, do you have an answer that for thing? that question? What, library e-books? Yeah, I'd never done that before. I've never done that before either. <laughs> So there's your answer, first of all. <laughs> well, for for that, I guess I'd have to look into it. But um, sometimes when I've like downloaded like a PDF of a book or something, like the reading experience is kind of frustrating because, like, the thing I like about the Kindles is that you can change like the color of the of the background and you can change the typeface and the size and, and all that stuff you can kind of customize it so that it's comfortable for you to read yeah but with um with some pdfs or, or even some other like ebook formats they're not as flexible and it can be kind of frustrating so i think that's that's the answer to the ebook side of things for me i mean I, i'd have to try it obviously but i don't know why i haven't i haven't been to the library in a long time what about you i haven't been to the library i think the last library book i borrowed was in 08 or 09 and it was like a down the rabbit hole sequel in the ender's game series oh man yeah don't and, pay money for that oh uh, yeah and it was like <laughs> attempting it was cards attempt to like bridge his two like parts of that universe it was not it was a bad book um 
So maybe that just like turned me off to library. I should go it back. <laughs> it's the library's fault it that is. you read a crappy <laughs> book. It's true. Um, I, I'll say that my gut reaction is that uh, when books are in the public domain, I, I don't have any qualms about just like finding the best possible digital version. But especially with books that are in the last century or so, there's a chance that when we buy them, we are either getting, you know, a good hard copy or we're, you know, some of that money goes to whoever wrote it or the, or the publishers who are putting it out. And uh, for a show that depends on the literary business being in good health, I'd have no qualms <laughs> about kicking a few dollars their way and, and making sure that more books get made. I don't know. That's a really good answer. I changed my answer to that one. Okay, good. <laughs> Retroactive. Uh, but we should also probably support libraries because they're important um, and they serve a valuable purpose in our society. So we should, you and I, Andrew, should brainstorm how to support libraries better with the show. Let's think on that. Okay. Let's go. Let's go um, rent some Super Nintendo games. Okay. From the library. <laughs> let's rent some... i use i use my child the library in my hometown as a kid i i checked out a lot of books but i also checked out a lot of super nintendo games all right well let's check out some cds and totally not rip them to our computers before we yeah. give them back great totally. so andrew you read i've already forgotten we've talked about too many other things what did you read isaac asimov's foundation which is the first book in a in what became a trilogy, but then eventually became a whole series of things, which we can talk about in a little while after we get um, through Asimov. So um, we must defeat him. He's going to stop us. We, we have, have to, to get, get through him. him first. Yes. Um, here's here are the basic facts. It's like he was born in either late 1919 or early 1920. Um, Asimov himself celebrated his birthday on January 2nd of 1920. But his actual birth date is a bit of a mystery because at one point, like his mom lied about his birthday to get him into school a year earlier. So nobody's really sure exactly when he was born. Well, and they were living um, in he, they were living in Soviet Russia and he come he came from a Jewish family and I'm sure there was some issues of, you know, paperwork that they were dealing with as well. I, re- I read a little bit about that. Okay. That um and then he died in nineteen ninety two. And he's, you know, he's he's best known for his sci-fi work. Um, Foundations a big series in his in his canon, as is um, I Robot and its associated stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's known as a hard science fiction writer, which means that his fiction makes at least some attempt to be scientifically sound or accurate, like it, like it tries to take real science into account instead of just like star wars where there's a bunch of noise and like oxygen and space for whatever reason <laughs> yeah he uh he only wrote about extraterrestrials a couple times and that's one of the big places where you see a a distinction between hard and soft science fiction not that hard science fiction doesn't have aliens sometimes but usually mm-hmm. it's much more kind of li- logical in how they're depicted um and not as fanciful like your star wars aliens yeah. there's no there's yeah, no then, akbars in right. in that asimov fiction and of course the the there's a there's not really a set definition for hard and soft and it is kind of a spectrum but 
I guess these are these are terms that people find useful when they're talking about these books and these writers. So we'll we'll stick with it. I think. I think it's particularly useful when you think about the writers because Asimov held degrees in chemistry and biochemistry, and even after he churned out several books and stories in the forties, in the fifties and sixties, he took a real hard turn into nonfiction science writing and popular science writing. Uh, in addition to writing about writers, which he did a lot throughout his life as well. Uh, but I think there's the easy classification, um, and then there's plenty of exceptions, I'm sure, I'll, I'll confess ignorance, but that a lot of the hard science fiction writers have scientific backgrounds or greater scientific backgrounds. I don't know. That's I don't want to disparage soft sci-fi folks, but sure. I, no, I mean, that's where Asimov sense. was coming from anyway. Yeah. Um, my favorite... I mean, he started writing at age 11, and he sold his first story, I think, when he was 19. My favorite little Asimov story is that he wanted to read, like, the like science fiction and, and these pulp magazines, mm-hmm. but um, his dad thought they were trashy, but Asimov convinced his dad to let him read it because it had the word science <laughs> in it, and so he told his dad that they're educational. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's I think pretty that's good. pretty smooth. These cookies, Asimov. These cookies have nuts in them. They're good for me. I'm gonna eat these cookies. <laughs> so, that's so- more lying to yourself, though. Like, <laughs> it's really easy to trick yourself, but to trick somebody else like that, I think, is particularly noteworthy. That's fair. Uh, Asimov is credited specifically with. Uh, a couple of creations through his literature, Andrew. I know this book doesn't really deal with robotics, so I kind of want to talk about that briefly. Um, okay. You mentioned the like iRobot and his robot series. That's where we get the three laws of robotics. Do you know the three laws of robotics, Andrew? Um, one is a robot shouldn't hurt a person. Yeah, so a robot right? can't uh, injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to do harm so you can't like the season finale, like the series finale of seinfeld like you can't be a robot and just like stand there and watch a guy get mugged <laughs> why is, okay i'm not gonna ask about why seinfeld was your go-to example <laughs> what are the other two the other two i don't remember uh, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law so if i was your robot andrew and you told me to serve you pizza until you died i couldn't i wouldn't be allowed <laughs> or if i told you to like shoot somebody with a gun i think would be a more like apt i think that's probably more what he had in mind rather than like death through overeating yeah but i feel like you and me hanging out the first is more likely to happen <laughs> sure. uh and the third one is a robot must protect his own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law so okay you couldn't tell me to eat 10 pizzas until i died Unless okay. the pizzas were going to kill you, and I had to save you from them. <laughs> yeah, this gets complicated. Because uh, you have to obey me as a robot. But and and the third law, it's supposed to it, the third law is supposed to be observant to the second law, right? So I could tell you to eat pizza until you died if you were a robot. I guess you're yes. If I was, I think yeah, two, because I'm listening to you. Trump's rule mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. 
So, oh, man. All right, and I'm glad we figured this out. I'm not going to enjoy being your robot. Uh, so these... I'm going to kick you right <laughs> over, too. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. These rules have kind of been aped and parodied and influenced all sorts of writers ever since Asimov, but they kind of have a, a nice, as we demonstrated, internal logic that uh, governed a lot of Asimov's robotic writing. And he only, actually only wrote about robots that broke those rules like three times, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. Most of his stories revolved around robots kind of doing weird stuff to adhere to the rules, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, and it's I think that a lot of more modern robot fiction is about like what happens when robots become self-sufficient or self-aware and they like they're it's all about getting past these laws like they they'll obey these laws until they gain sentience and then they are just all about rising up against their human master well yeah and the the biggest uh trope i think is the one where one of those laws gets turned on its head so that robots deem that we are the big we are the most dangerous game and must be stopped you know sure um, from ourselves uh, he's actually credited with the term robotics, Asimov is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, automation has existed for centuries, but he's the one who kind of coined it as a scientific term. Uh, he also created a word called spome, Andrew. What do you think? Of I've s- never heard spome. It sounds like it sounds like some kind of Nickelodeon like goop <laughs> that they'd sell you <laughs> at a Toys R Us. It's a, it's a portmanteau for space home, and it's... <laughs> Okay. It's a hypothetical system that has a close it's a closed system with respect to matter but an open system with respect to energy. Bas- I think it's just you get inside a box and it keeps you alive forever. I'm not quite sure how it works, but Okay. Spoom. Cool. Spoom. Uh, Got it. And then he also came up with the term psychohistory, which is like a fictional science. I think it's referenced in this series. Um, yeah, it's kind of pivotal to right. to foundation. So we'll come so back we'll to that. About it we'll come bit. back to that. Yeah. Um the only other thing I want to talk about, because I don't want us to run long this week, is uh, there's something called Five and Five and One, Andrew. This was mm-hmm. a film that Asimov wrote a script for. Guess who asked him to write the script? Um, no. Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah. Paul McCartney <laughs> wanted Asimov to write a movie where hit Paul McCartney and the band Wings would play <laughs> like a pop rock band that was taken over by aliens. And so Man. Asimov wrote a movie where these space energy beings came to the Earth. First they were lizards, then they were cows, and then they decided that humans were the best way to take over the Earth. Uh, so they you know, peeped on this band called The Group, and they... like became their own band called the super group uh and then their manager learned to love and uh this doesn't make any sense <laughs> man this sounds like a paul mccartney idea i don't have you ever seen the magical mystery tour movie no because he was responsible for a lot of that it's weird it's re- there's this one scene where john lennon is like feeding this lady a pile of spaghetti with like a shovel <laughs> It's just bizarre. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that Paul McCartney was involved in this weird. But get movie this, idea. McCartney rejected it because Asimov didn't take enough of his ideas. 
<laughs> it probably wasn't weird enough. Man. Uh, so that's Asimov. He kind of dovetailed with a whole bunch of famous people by being, you know, a respected writer in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a crossover Kurt with Star- was one. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. He was... Yeah, friends with Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek, and Asimov got a consultant credit on the first Star Trek movie, um, which is not that great, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, All right, I don't want to run over, because there's more stuff to talk about. We'll try and throw it up on the web this week so that people can read more about Asimov. Andrew, let's talk about Foundation. Okay. What do you want to (laughs) know? You stumped me. Let me start again. Let me start again. Okay, Foundation. uh, The book itself was originally a series of short stories that were written between 1942 and 1950. And then they were collected into one volume in 1951. And I think he wrote the last of the five stories in this book specifically for the the book collection. Um, He did a sequel in 52 and in 53. And for a long time, those those books were known as the Foundation Trilogy. Um, but he came back, I think his, had, originally at his publisher's request, he revisited the series in the 80s and the 90s. And from there, two more sequel books and then two prequel books popped up. So and, um, he, pulled a, he pulled a Sherlock Holmes. He, he revived the yeah, detective. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know... I mean, we talked about Orson Scott Card earlier, and I think that's a good example. Unlike some artists who choose to come back to, like, really defining works and, like, try to expand them or revisit them. Like, these books, the later Foundation books, are are still pretty well received. It's not like the Ender's Shadow to Foundation's Ender's Game. I can't even. I don't want to go down that path. We could spend a whole show... Maybe we'll do a bonus episode one day about books that make us feel sad about other books that we like. So, <laughs> but I don't want to distract people from Foundation, Andrew. What about what about this book might lend itself to revisiting? I don't know. What do you need? Well, you know? it's um, it's you know, it's a series of short stories, like I said, and they're all told from different perspectives, and um, at least the five books that go in order the stories all kind of like chronologically follow one another. Okay. Um, so the, the setup and he, you know, he never actually gets to the, the end of this, of the scenario that he set up, but he's created this, this universe where you could basically tell infinite stories. So there's this galactic empire, which spans pretty much the entire Milky way galaxy. Cool. It is the Milky way. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's existed for like thousands and thousands of years. And, um, you know, at the beginning of Foundation, like, to all, you know, for all intents and purposes, like, it appears to be still very strong and very dominant and in its its prime. But there's this guy named uh, Harry Seldon who, um, using this thing called psychohistory, he's he's determined that, like, mathematically the Empire is going to begin to decline soon and that in its wake, like, it will it will usher in this this dark age now he's not where making this happen he's just no he's not it. making this happen like the psychohistory is i mean it's not real but in the book <laughs> it's the use of like statistics and mathematics to predict the behaviors of 
large numbers of people. Now that just so sounds it's, like it's not about research. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's it like social science. No, not really. Um, because he, it's really specific. Like it's really specific about what happens and when. It doesn't get down to the point where it's predicting the actions of individual people. Okay. But um, he develops this plan where, like, instead of instead of having this dark age where humanity you know regresses and and loses a bunch of the technology and stuff because they're all just they all break up into these little fiefdoms and and fight each other and and you know stop making progress instead of that period lasting i think it's 30,000 years it's a long time okay um he harry selden is developing this plan to make it just last a thousand years like the reversing the decline at this point would take so much effort from so many people that it's like effectively impossible so is he going to happen make it happen sooner but just take less time or is he going to make it be shorter when it eventually happens he's going to make the dark ages be shorter when they eventually happen like they are they are presented as kind of an inevitability and he's not causing any of this stuff he's just observing it happening okay um so he and a bunch of other scientists and people are sent to like the the empire the people in power actually you know obviously they don't subscribe to these theories and they just kind of want to get him out of the way so he can't like he can't talk about these ideas in front of people all the time and and like upset them and and destabilize things okay um so they they kind of you know they kind of like pat him on the head and they send him and a bunch of other scientists off to this remote planet at like the fringe of the of the galaxy seems and wise that becomes yeah and and the the pitch is that they're supposed to be working on this encyclopedia that will catalog like all human knowledge so that you know once the dark ages get there they won't they won't lose all that and like have to start over again now does he buy on that's his idea or that is what they assigned him to do that's his idea and who is they the heads of the empire the yeah just the government okay um, it's kind of it's like a council in this, in this thing. Like it's some sort of space government, whatever. You don't, yeah, don't you know. don't spend a lot of time in the in the empire, like getting an idea of its inner workings. I think that happens a little bit more in the later novels. But um, would you say yeah, that? So that's he is laying a foundation. I might say that if I was an idiot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first short story. Is this this? guy harry selden he gathers all these people he goes to this planet called terminus and they start work on this encyclopedia and then you and then the next story takes place 50 years after this so every every between every story there is a time jump and sometimes it's a longer jump than others but in most cases like the it's long enough that the stuff from the previous story has kind of passed has almost like passed into legend at this point like i don't know imagine imagine how fdr or somebody is to is to us yeah okay and you get and you get a feeling for like how these how these past leaders have kind of been glorified and, and just remembered really well does that does that make sense no that makes total sense i think that's something that we kind of forget when these space stories take place in like worlds that are thousands years old or or something like that like Mm -hmm. the day-to-day time period 
or a lapse of time that then kind of what can happen over maybe five to ten years kind of gets lost, right? It's usually mm-hmm. set in a place that has thousands of years of history, and then Star Wars probably takes place over about a week. Like, I'm just, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I haven't I don't haven't gone down the Wikipedia in a long time, so. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, you, you think like, oh, 50 years, 30 years, however long there is between stories. That's, you know, that's not enough time for for giant change to happen but then you know america is like 240 years old or something yeah precisely a lot of stuff has happened in 30 years (laughs) yeah it does not take long for these big changes to happen so uh, i don't know if i should go down go through like every story but it's basic you're you're following these phases of this new society okay like so the the second story that happens 50 years later is all about, um, you know, Harry Seldon has made these recordings that are supposed to play at, at specific intervals because he's, you know, he's predicted, he's timed out everything. So 50 years after the, the foundation planet is formed, he has this, he knows that politically, he knows politically how things are going to be. Like there, there are planets surrounding terminus that were parts of the empire that have broken off and this is like the beginning of that decay starting to starting to set in and um and so he knows that he knows that these these plants are going to be fighting each other and for the for terminus to be safe that they're going to need to start getting like politically involved instead of just sitting and working on this encyclopedia they, so this recording yeah. of him basically appears and says psych the encyclopedia is not really the point Oh no! <laughs> this planet is going to be the kernel of the second galactic empire. Oh snap! <laughs> yeah. Okay, is there a new like main character in this story that we're following? Um, yeah, you get you usually get one new perspective in every story. With the the second and third stories take place from the perspective of the same person, just you know, thirty years down the line. Okay, the third story. Um. So this so, new okay, planet, that's a, that's a, this new planet yeah. has is now like gearing for war. Like, was not war though. Oh, it's it's more about it's more about outsmarting people. Like, okay, so so here's the third story. Is it's thirty years later? This uh, this guy, shoot, let me look. I don't remember his name. Well, I I think I remember his name. <laughs> Salvor Hardin. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I guess I get why you would double-check that name. <laughs> <laughs> and so he is, like, at the begin- at the beginning of the second story, he's the mayor of Terminus, but it's a position that doesn't really have any any power. Like, the, the Council of Encyclopedists are who is making the actual shots. But then by the end of that story, he's performed kind of a bloodless coup. Interesting. And, you know, back- and backed by what? Harry Seldon says is happening like he becomes a, a public figure with actual power. The third story is all about him playing these four surrounding planets off of each other. Okay. And kind of and giving them each new technology and kind of keeping them indebted to the foundation while also sort of preserving an uneasy Cold War-ish piece. Hmm. Okay. Where they are all afraid enough <clears throat> 
of getting blown up by the other person's nukes that they are slow to actually nuke anybody. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that sounds like nothing I've ever heard of. Yeah. And the way the way the way they've actually propagated like this nuclear technology and stuff is through religion actually. Hmm. So so some of the people on these planets are starting to view science with a dim eye and they are not really making any any advances, but the foundation people figure out that if you wrap it up in this religion called scientism okay you can make the people you can make the people swallow it so like nuclear reactors become like these shiny glow boxes that are tended to by priests whoa um there's a magic food that you eat to cure cancer whoa it's just it's just medicine but they just call it like magic cancer (laughs) food (laughs) oh no and um and the third story ends with this, you know, one of the planets is run by this crappy regent guy who sucks. And he <laughs> <laughs> he attempts to declare war on the Foundation and, and take their stuff. But because the Foundation has set up this religion and kind of um, really captured the minds of the people, they all see attacking the Foundation as blasphemy, basically. And they, they like, rise up and... and interesting stop the stop the battle from happening so there's there's very little actual fighting in this book like it's it's a lot of a lot of talking a lot of just politics it's it's very it's a really interesting read you know it's a gripping read for that but it's it's more i think it's more in the vein of like the talkier episodes of star trek like the higher concept episodes of star trek than it is something like star wars well and that's what i've read about uh asimov in general i'll confess i don't know what asimov i've read actually if i've read any um but that his stories and his books are much denser in the way of plot and you know dialogue driven narrative than they are in character or even description um would you say that that's a fair assessment based on what you read yeah yeah i think so um because i mean there are characters in this but you don't spend a ton of time with all of them and there's not a lot of effort made to like separate them. And you're not, are you privy to their like inner life very much? Is there a lot of like kind of free and direct narrative? It's a very close third person. I think sometimes you get into their, into their heads, but, um, but it's not like an omniscient third person perspective or something most of the time. Um, so what happens in the fourth book? Okay, so religion, so f- science, science has been turned into a religion. So we go, okay, we go from the empire to the encyclopedists to the religion. In the fourth story, other planets that the foundation people are trying to bring into the fold have gotten, have become wary of this scientific, or not science, the scientism, like the religion thing. Okay, so um, so we've they, soured they on this, science. They don't want this weird religion foisted upon them. And this is kind of the fourth and fifth stories, both. Like in the fourth story, you get these merchants, these traders who go from planet to planet, and they start kind of spreading the religion through trade. Like they, they start giving the people like some nuclear devices, and then once those people are dependent on those devices the religious people come in and set up shop. And then in the fifth story, that approach has kind of stopped working and it's more overtly about just, just trade. Like hmm. one of the, one of the traders 
starts giving the population of this planet who is, you know, the planet is not interested in the religion at all. Like is actively nervous about dealing with the foundation at all because of the way the religion has spread. And, um, so what, what the foundation people do is they give the, the leaders of this planet and the people of these planets, like all these convenient nuclear devices like washing machines and, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Wait, how does a nuclear washing machine work? I don't know. There's, it's not important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so this planet goes to declare war on the foundation and the, and the, guy who's kind of calling the shots at the foundation says okay we're just going to wait them out because once these nuclear devices stop breaking because they don't know how to fix them or make them themselves the people are going to get so upset at the leaders that they're going to just surrender with you know barely firing any shots of course and that's and that's kind of the that's kind of the last the last bit of it and while this at least in this book while this is all happening like where are we in this decline of the empire? Is that already happened? Is this like the empire is at the margins? Um, the you know the kind of periphery of the galaxy where they are. The empire is, is mostly irrelevant. Um, shrunk away from from that, but the empire is still very much there, which is which is a big part of what the second book is about. Which I've actually started reading. I like this book a lot, so I don't. I'm not going to talk about the second book, but. I enjoy the first one enough that I just wanted to jump right back in to the universe and figure out what happened next. I get the feeling that the second book is like the empire peeks into the bedroom and the and the kid who is the foundation like looks up and the found and the empire is like, "Hey, what are you doing in there? Like, <laughs> what have you been doing over here all this time?" Well, the empire is so thoroughly like has so thoroughly left this part of the galaxy that there are some foundation people who just think that it's gone now completely they, yeah they've just not like there are leftovers of the technology and of the of the ships and things but the actual empire has very very little sway outside of its borders okay um, so that's so that's the book what do you think it's up to andrew the the main thing is that asimov is very consciously um, echoing like the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Okay, with his talk with his talk about about this book, and there is um, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. The Gibbons is, book, um, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Edward Gibbons book, which is which is considered by a lot of people to be um, one of the first like modern histories. Was that when was that of, written? Of his, um, that was in I want to say like seventeen seventeen seventy six was the first volume. So okay. it was a while ago. But um, Gibbons, um, I guess it's his relative objectivity and his his heavy use of primary sources are why it's considered like a template for for what a modern historical book should be. Okay, is Asimov? But Asimov isn't kind of aping any primary source like vibes or style right like he's not giving you fake memos or documents no 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 it's it's very much some i mean you get every story begins with a snippet from the encyclopedia galactica of course which is the encyclopedia that they i guess i mean it it you don't it fades from view after the after the second story but i guess there are still people working on it the whole time they're all working on galactopedia like galactopedia yeah the 
encyclopedia that anybody can edit. <laughs> okay, so he's why, but I guess why? Why do you write a sign other than because it's a gripping yarn? Um, Asimov, super smart dude, you know, like in Mensa, even though he had misgivings about Mensa, declared that one of the two sm- people in the world smarter than him was Carl Sagan. And <laughs> the other guy was some scientist I'd never heard of when I read the note. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's not, I, I doubt he's just here to tell a story. Like, especially with this big one that, that so many people, or is he just here to, to tell a story? I don't know. I think it's it's mostly about telling a story. Like the, I was a classics major in college, which is not like knowledge that I use a whole lot in my <laughs> career as a technology writer. <laughs> But part of what drew me to that in the first place was, like, I find the Roman Empire and the Republic, like, really interesting. Okay. And um, the way that the Empire expanded and then stopped expanding and then started contracting is a really – it's a really interesting look at the way societies work. And, like – and I think you can even draw some parallels between um, the Roman Empire – and like, and maybe the, I don't know about the British Empire, but you could definitely draw some parallels with like the development of America. Oh, totally. I think it's like the recent history of America. Of course. Because the deal with the the Roman Empire that um, Asimov is kind of consciously aping here is that, you know, they went through this period where they were actively, you know, developing new things and expanding into new territory and growing and, and staying vital and then there's this period where the leadership gets a little weaker. Um, the empire just gets so big that they kind of go into maintenance mode. And then um, I guess because they stop moving forward and they stop developing, it opens the door for for decay to set in. And so, you know, the, the borders of the empire over its last couple centuries fluctuate a lot. But... Um, but overall, it's 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 just shrinking until Rome gets sacked in like three hundred something. Yeah, which I think is is usually considered to be the end of the Western Roman Empire. Well, and so the story there that you know that you were just kind of telling is, I think, largely told through those leaders, through those single emperors or whoever. And yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. much of Roman history is, uh, at least as we study it today, is kind of wrapped up in what the heck were each of those individual guys up to and you've kind Mm -hmm. of alluded to that a little bit with this book i find it interesting that it starts with this idea of psychohistory that is you know using a bunch of different disciplines to predict the behavior of large groups of people Mm -hmm. and yet the tent there's tension between that and what individual men or leaders or whoever are doing in this book yeah, because the, the people in the books, like the foundation people are the ones who know the most about about Harry Seldon, about the stuff he predicted. But it's not like common knowledge that this stuff is happening, because if everybody knew about it, I think it would alter the chances of it happening, happening mm-hmm. the way it's it's quote unquote supposed to. Um, and and part of the the book, because it has to do this to work 
makes psychohistory so complicated to understand <laughs> that nobody other than Harry Seldon can actually wrap his head around it. So you don't have people in each of these eras like who can actively, you know, take the temperature of of society and and tell whether they're on the right track. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because you you look at that and you're like, well, of course that's a contrivance to make the story happen, but you know, we've been contriving things to make story like you know, you're a wizard, Harry, like that has to happen for the book to work. Or, you know, someone has to walk out and say that the gods ordained this. And then we're just going to watch this guy fight that until it happens for two hours. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So does the book possess a strong sense of inevitability? And that's kind of what drives you forward because you're wondering how some of this stuff is going to play out. It does have some inevitability to it, but, um, things kind of turn on specific events and um the characters in the book actually refer to these events as um selden crises interesting okay (laughs) yeah because every every time like you know when the when the one planet is going to attack the foundation and you know they use religion to to keep it from happening or when planets stop wanting to be part of the foundation but they use trade to get around it like these these are kind of the pivot points where the foundation's tactics change or like the attitudes of other planets toward the foundation change and um yeah so the, i mean there there is inevitability but there is still a sense that things could go off the rails if they you know if if things don't unfold exactly as they need to so are the encyclopedists are the foundation people trying to keep it all according to plan and that's that's their goal i mean a lot of time they don't know what the plan is they just know that things are getting to a point where some tension needs to break and at that point you you know like a selden crisis is going to happen uh um is there anything else about the i don't know there, there are a couple interesting moments like he's when he's talking about how the parts of the empire that are breaking off are starting to lose their technological edge. Like there's this guy who shows up and he's talking about, about research and, and he's like, why would you, why would you do primary research again when you could just read the secondhand stuff that somebody else did? Hmm. And I think not only, not only is that a commentary on, um, on these planets like decaying but it's also i think it's kind of in in tribute to gibbons almost okay because he does return to primary sources where he can get them instead of relying on secondary sources Hmm. interesting well and Um, i think that that actually speaks to i wonder how it speaks to uh seems relevant asimov was a proponent of like uh computer assisted learning that would be like mm -hmm. one-on-one student driven learning where you would just like read whatever the heck you wanted as a kid you just ask the computer to just tell you about things uh mm-hmm. and i in one way that feels like ridden with secondary sources right because at least in our own age vis-a-vis the internet that just means you'd be reading a bunch of blogs about history uh but it also removes the middleman it removes the teacher it brings you in direct contact with the source yeah, uh, yeah. that's interesting and I guess, and and the theory that 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 this book sort of 
hinges on is that, you know, these you need to keep doing research. You need to keep understanding basic concepts, really understanding them or else you start to, you know, you as a society start to lose knowledge and then you can't get it back. Hmm. So, I mean, nuclear power is usually used as a big dividing line. Like it's because it's so specialized, these civilizations kind of lose the ability to do it first. Oh, yeah. Like once people stop teaching how to do it and stop knowing how to do it, like they can sometimes they can patch up the reactors they have, but they can't build new ones. Sometimes the reactors just go out and they can't they don't have the knowledge to get them back up. And so they go back to coal and oil and and whatever that's interesting he was a huge Um, proponent of nuclear power too um yeah it's definitely there's there's a moment that it's i don't want to say it's funny but it's just it's (laughs) when when um somebody on the on terminus is talking to somebody from one of the other planets and it's and they imply that they're using oil and coal power and the and the the foundation character is like what really you're just using oil and coal like kind of condescendingly (laughs) a little bit (laughs) like that marks where your planet has sunk into the barbarianism is when you're back to fossil fuel god you're listening to music on a zoom what are you doing (laughs) your society's really decaying you're you're only eating quinoa you haven't moved on to super kale what are you doing (laughs) the one thing my one criticism of this book and it's just it's just i think it's just that the book is a product of his time is that there are no women anywhere i was gonna ask you about that because he's been you're never in the head of a woman you're never like you don't see women most of the time yeah the one who the one who you do see is kind of a harpy who just likes pretty jewelry or something Um, Which is weird. Yeah, he so. he identified as an advocate for women's rights, uh, as well as kind of rights for um, homosexuals as well, because he said that it was related to his feelings about overpopulation and how he thought that, you know, increased rights for all adults in general with regard to marriage and, and reproduction would benefit the planet because it would you know, curb overpopulation in a way. Right. Um, Which is an oddly specific way to arrive at a modern liberal point of view. (laughs) Uh, But, and so he's, he's said that, you know, he's for women, but he's roundly been criticized uh, by at least modern scholars. And even I think in his own time about the lack of women in his writing. Yeah, so it may be the case that there are women in, in subsequent Foundation books, but there are very, very, very few of them in this one. I think he was even quoted as saying, like, he just didn't write them because he didn't have any experience, which seems like sort of a cop-out. I don't... Yeah, He was married twice. I don't... I think that's a cop-out, Isaac. I'm going to yeah. put you on blast for that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's that's Foundation, pretty much. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a good place to stop. Yeah, you're gonna read the the next book as you have time because you're into it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not gonna read it for the show, but I'm gonna keep. Um, I think I'm gonna keep picking away at the at the 
series until I get tired of it or whatever. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> or until I or if I finish it, I guess that could work too. Uh, if you have opinions on science fiction or want to share with us maybe the book that makes you sad about a favorite book of yours, you can email into overduepod at gmail.com like we alluded to earlier. You can also tweet to us at twitter.com slash overduepod or see us on Facebook where we share articles and you can post your own stuff on Facebook as well. Facebook.com slash overduepod. I want to give a shout out to Lee, Chrissy G, Rob, Jay, Jonathan, Quintic, I think, Quinn, maybe, who shared some Shakespeare comics on our wall. Um, they all reached out to us on social media this week. Thank you so much. Andrew, where else can people find us on the internet? They can go to www.overduepodcast.com, and uh, that's where we keep our iTunes links, our our uh, Stitcher links, our RSS links, all of those you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review or a rating. That stuff is is much appreciated. Um, and then up there, we've also got Amazon links to the books that we have read and the ones that we're going to read that you can use to um, buy the books and support the show. Uh, we've also got a link to our Patreon project, which we launched a few weeks ago. Um, you can use that to set up recurring monthly donations to the show and um and support us in that way our next goal is at 150 dollars per month and at that point we start doing an extra bonus episode every month and if you're a if you're a backer of of us then you get early access to it so that that's i don't think that's gonna happen in the near future but i think we're gonna get there surprise us yeah um and then what's the other thing there's something else right well we got an itunes review from uh, knit at night which is a pretty good name i think uh <laughs> and among other things said that they were going to keep downloading episodes that looked promising and th- i think you could download all the what all the episodes uh, that just listen they to the ones promising. that you like or that look yeah. good plenty of people do that and those downloads and those subscriptions help other people find the show that's the only reason yeah. that i ask you to do that you can download them and delete them to your heart's content but hopefully you're listening, because then I'm not just speaking into the internet. Uh, <laughs> next week, I am uh, going to talk about a play by John Ford called Tis a Pity She's a Whore, which was recommended uh, by Nada, who uh, is a Patreon backer. And uh, we'll, it's a contemporary of Shakespeare's, and so we'll talk about how, this, how that play might factor into that whole realm of yeah. history as well. Oh, I remember the thing I was going to say. We, I, I set up our, um, our supporters page ah. on, the, on the website. If you go to overduepodcast.com and click um, supporters, you can see the list of people who ha- are donating at um, $3 or above on Patreon. And um, you know, if you do that, we want you to send in your favorite book and just a few sentences about why you like it. And I think it it's a good way for people who listen to the show to discover even more books that we aren't necessarily tackling every week. Yeah, we've gotten a couple emails to that regard where people say, what books do you recommend? And some of them we would recommend we've already read, so we're not going to talk about it on the show. So that's a great place for our listeners to share thoughts on their favorite books. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think that's it. Um, that's it. Yeah, all right, <laughs> everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, we'll see you next week. And until then, try to be happy.